a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are, going to do, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Well, let me add my welcome to Ken's. My name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm going to give the first of two short talks that we'll be having uh, this morning through our service. Let me pray briefly for us, and then we'll consider that passage that was just read. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather here this morning. And we do pray that you might help us to hear your words and the significance of them and that we might respond in trust. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure many of you saw in the news on Monday that a massive blaze took place at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, devastating large parts of this 850-year-old church. The fire, of course, was out within about uh, 12 hours or so, but the cathedral's iconic spire uh, fell during those hours that it took to battle the blaze. And the Minister of Culture in France, Frank Reister, said on radio on Tuesday, the main structure has been saved, but there's a lot of instability. The situation is still precarious. Last night, two-thirds of the roof burned, the spire collapsed and created a, a large hole in the vault. And because some of the hundreds of artworks in the building uh, were believed to have been lost, though a number were saved also. But France's president, Emmanuel Macron, spoke on Tuesday and said to the nation that he wants the cathedral to be rebuilt in five years. Five years. We will mobilise for this, he said in a television address, as firefighters and engineers continue to take stock. We are a people of builders. We have so much to rebuild, and we will rebuild. We will make it even more beautiful than before. He reminded France that in their history, towns and cities and ports and churches have been burned down or destroyed in wars or revolutions. And every time they had rebuilt. And so he said, we have to get to work. I want it done within the next five years. Well, that pledge is likely to meet scepticism from a lot of people, especially restoration experts. Uh, one of them, Eric Fisher, uh, who heads up a foundation that recently restored the 1,000-year-old church in Strasbourg, has predicted that the restoration could take decades. An oak merchant, Sylvain Chaloy, predicted that replacing the forest of huge oaks that made up the roof that had burnt and collapsed 
would take years, even decades. The framing of that cathedral consisted of 1,300 oak trees, which represents about two and a half acres of forest. Well, as Jesus hung on the cross, outside the walls of Jerusalem on that first Good Friday some 2,000 years ago, one of the insults hurled at him from the crowd was, you who said that you would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And they were largely quoting Christ's words. They were right. And so this morning I want to ask the question, what did he mean? What did Jesus mean about destroying and rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem in three days? And by extension, what does that mean for you and for I today? Well, the first answer to that question is that he is the temple that will die and rise again. He is the temple that will die and rise again. Have a look again with me, verses 38 to 40, to hear the crowd's quote in context. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. Well, we saw last week that Jesus, when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, went straight for the temple. He made a beeline straight to the heart of the nation's worship. And as he went in, he created a huge uproar as he cleared out the court of the Gentiles, overturned the money, tab uh, money changers' tables, removed the sacrifices that were there being sold to the people so that they could offer them at the temple, created a massive stir inside the temple. And he highlighted that the temple was meant to be God's house of prayer for all people, and he rebuked them for their sin getting in the way, that they could not enter into God's presence because of the sin of the people. The Holy of Holies at the centre of the temple complex represented God's presence before the people, and yet no one could enter it because of their sin. Only once a year, and only then with blood, could the high priest enter into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the nation. And so it was off limits to people. Their access to God was denied. But now five days later, here is Jesus who had stirred the whole city with his thunderous entrance and he's being crucified outside the walls of the city by the Roman authorities. And two robbers are being crucified either side of him and it's a death scene that was played out thousands and thousands and thousands of times throughout the Roman Empire. Nothing new here. How could anything significant be taking place? How is this guy standing hung up on the middle cross any different to those that have gone before him? Except that he'd made astounding claims. Astounding claims, some of which were being hurled back at him as he hung there dying. See, in verse 40, as they make this statement about Jesus saying how he'd destroy and rebuild the temple. They were quoting Jesus' first visit to the temple. In, it's recorded in John chapter 2. When he went there, he also cleared out the temple courts. And when he did that in John 2, the religious leaders were so shocked 
not just at his actions, but the fact that he felt he could do that. And so they came to him and said, who are you? What authority do you have? Show us some sign that you can do this. And his reply was, your sign is this. I will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And so this claim was shocking, just as his actions were shocking to the religious authorities. And of course, they took his statement literally. They questioned him in the next verse how he could build something in three days that had taken 46 years to build. But John notes that the temple he had spoken of was his body. See, Jesus could refer to himself as the temple because he was God in the flesh, God present with the people. What the temple had only ever symbolized, he was before them, the son of God. And so the symbolism of the building was just a shadow. It was now obsolete with the coming of Jesus. And the temple was his body, and indeed it was being destroyed as he hung dying on the cross. But it was going to be raised on the third day. It's the resurrection that we're going to celebrate on Sunday. And though the crowds mocked his claim about destroying and rebuilding the temple, Jesus was declaring the gospel. And so what does that mean for you and I today? Well, secondly, Christ's claim to be the temple of God helps us in this way. His death offers us salvation. The answer actually comes in the ironic mocking of the religious leaders and the crowds. But his death truly offers us salvation. Have a look again, verse 41 and 42. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. You see, their point was clear, wasn't it? If he really was so powerful and important, then why couldn't he? Why couldn't he come down from the cross as those mocking him asked? Surely his crucifixion showed that he was just another weak human like everybody else. Just a nobody who had made big claims about himself. And of course, that would be true if it weren't for the fact that he had predicted that he would die this way several times. And indeed, it had been predicted for centuries that the Messiah would come and die. So what does Christ's death achieve? Well, nothing less than what they were mocking. It achieves our salvation. You see, the taunts that he saved others but couldn't save himself were highly ironic. If he was to save others, he could not save himself at this point. You see, our debt of sin before God required a perfect sacrifice. None of us can earn our way to heaven. We can never be good enough. And the focus of all the temple's operations for centuries, for millennium, were that people had to bring a perfect sacrifice in their place to atone for their sin, to pay for their sin, or else there was no access, no relationship with God. And so Jesus comes as the once-for-all final sacrifice, the sin-bearer in our place. And his death means that our debt can be paid and we're offered life. 
And so precisely because he was the son of God, he could not come down off the cross. If he had of, he would have aborted his mission and no forgiveness to us could have ever been offered. We need his payment. And so his commitment to us to rescue us out of love, this was what kept him on the cross, not the nails. Coming back to the fire at Notre Dame Cathedral, there's naturally been a great sadness, an outpouring of it over the damage done to such a famous building. One onlooker has said, this is something huge for Western culture and for the world. Another lady arrived to lay flowers. It was the least she could do, she said, for a building that is our life. But a building, whether a famous church in Paris or the temple in Jerusalem, cannot give life to a person. Life can only be received through a right relationship with a holy God. And the only way this is possible is for Jesus, the living temple, to come and lay down his life and rise again. And no building will ever bring you to God. Only the Son of God can grant you access to the Holy Father. And so Jesus is God in the flesh the one who died so that we might live. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy shown to us in sending Jesus. We thank you that in him, the living temple, we have one who can do what we cannot, who died so that we might be saved. Lord, help us to respond, we pray. Amen. The second Bible reading this morning is continuing from verse 45 to 61. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over, over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemasabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When, someone, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. 
He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Uh, the, uh, the Iron Curtain. It was a term uh, that was made popular by British Prime Minister Winston Churchill uh, and it referred to the, the non-physical barrier that separated the eastern bloc of Soviet-controlled European countries from the western capitalist countries in the aftermath of World War II. Uh, there were huge tensions on either side of this Iron Curtain. Political tensions, economic tensions, military tensions from both sides towards the other. Uh, now, the, the Iron Curtain, although it was a, a metaphorical barrier, uh, a metaphor to describe what divided East and West, there was actually a physical barrier in part. You may know of it, the Berlin Wall, a 40-kilometre barrier that divided the city of Berlin that made it near impossible for people to cross from one side to the other for the best part of three decades. But with the end of the Cold War... In the late 1980s, Eastern Germany uh, was eventually kind of compelled to change its policy regarding this barrier, this division. Eventually, East Germany allowed for its residents to travel freely out of the East and into the West. Uh, when that decision was made, it was broadcast across East and West Germany on the news that night, the night of November the 9th, 1989. Uh, the news anchor started off his broadcast with these famous words. This 9th of November is a historic day. The German Democratic Republic, that's East Germany, has announced that starting immediately, its borders are open to everyone. The gates in the wall stand open wide. Those of you who are old enough to remember those events happening, you will remember the scenes of jubilation as East Germans rushed the wall, rushed to experience the freedom that was on offer in West Germany at the time. Uh, that weekend that the wall was finally opened, more than two million Germans crossed from east to west. One uh, journalist wrote that what was happening in the streets was the greatest street party that the world had ever seen. Soon after this decision, the wall was uh, demolished. And in its wake, thousands of German families were reunited who had been separated for decades. A whole nation of people was suddenly free free to think whatever they want, to buy whatever they want, to go wherever they want, to worship however they want. And Germany itself was eventually reunified. There was peace for the first time in years. Uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, the larger end to the Iron Curtain was undoubtedly one of the most significant events in modern history. But let me tell you, friends, it pales in comparison to another curtain that tore 2,000 years ago, as Jesus hung on the cross. Matthew, as he's writing his gospel account for us, he points out there in verse 50 that at the exact moment of Jesus' death, after Jesus had cried out again on the cross and given up his spirit, Matthew tells us that the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If you were here last Sunday, you remember we talked about what this curtain was and we talked about it being this physical and symbolic reminder, this barrier that we are separated from God's presence. It reminded us that because of our sin, we cannot come near to God. 
Just like it was for Adam and Eve in the garden, we must be evicted from God's holy presence. That is true for all of sinful humanity, and that's what the curtain reminded us. And so Matthew, he includes this little detail, and it ought to grab our attention. What happens immediately as the Lord Jesus Christ dies? The temple curtain is torn in two. This is like a neon flashing sign pointing us to the significance of these events. We are supposed to be captured. This explanation, this, this curtain explains what is happening as Jesus dies on the cross. This is alerting us to the fact that something is changing, something that has been in place since the beginning of the world. Now that our sin has been dealt with, now that the sacrifice, the perfect spotless sacrifice of Jesus Christ has been made, our sin has been washed away, and so it's no longer access denied. For us, it's access granted. The tearing of the temple curtain is God tearing up that keep out sign, saying that you must not come near me. He's saying that doesn't apply to us anymore. It's God saying that a reunion is possible. It's God saying that hostilities have ended. It's God saying that peace is available for all of his enemies. So as we reflect on, on this this morning, the tearing of the temple curtain, what I want to do for you is just to offer two implications, what this means for you this morning, this Easter. The first implication of the, the temple curtain being torn in two is that it shows us that either we come to God through Jesus or we don't come at all. We come to God through Jesus or we don't come at all. In the book of Hebrews, another New Testament letter, the writer is reflecting on these Easter events, the, the tearing of the curtain. And this is what the writer says. He, that is Jesus, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The point the author is making is that there are no animal sacrifices that were ever able to achieve what Jesus achieved. Access to God was only granted by the blood of Jesus. You know, the priests in the temple, they would offer those animal sacrifices day after day, year after year, but they could never deal with the root cause of our problem. They could never deal with our sin. In fact, no religious rituals ever can. Do you know that, friends? There is, there is nothing you can do to deal with your sin. No amount of prayer and meditation. No amount of giving alms to the poor. No amount of good works. Nothing. Nothing that any of us can do to earn entry into God's presence. Trying, near, trying to come near to God using those things is just like running on a treadmill. You will never get anywhere only Jesus' blood shed on the cross will take away our sin and as the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says, will secure for us eternal redemption. Consider the fact, friends, if you've not thought about this before, consider the fact that if there was any other way for us to come near to God, this problem that has stood for all eternity, us not being able to come into the presence of God, if there was any other way for us to do that, apart from the death of God's beloved Son, don't you think God would have told us about that way? Don't you think he would have instructed us to do that instead if it meant he could spare the life of his beloved son? Of course, there is no other way. The blood of Jesus is the only way that we have access to a holy God. Jesus himself said the same thing, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. Friends, the first implication of this temple curtain tearing on that Friday 2,000 years ago is that there is now a way for you to come to God, but just one way, through Jesus. And so you come through him or you don't come at all. The second implication for us this morning of the temple curtain tearing is that now we can have a loving relationship with a holy God. We can have a loving relationship with a holy God. You know, often when people think about what Jesus did as he died on that cross, they, they often understand that somehow Jesus was dealing with our sin, that somehow because of what Jesus did, we now get to dodge the bullet of God's judgment. And that is absolutely true. But do you understand, friends, that what Jesus did on the cross was so much more than that? Jesus did pay for our sins. He dealt with our greatest need before God. But do you understand that he did that for a purpose? He didn't just pay for our sins on the cross. No, God sent Jesus to pay for our sins. Why? So that we could come to him. Do you understand, friends, that forgiveness is not the end goal of your salvation? Forgiveness is not the greatest thing God has given you. Relationship is. You are forgiven and washed clean so that you can come to God. This torn curtain that we see on Easter morning, it is an open door. It's an invitation for us to come in, to come home and to experience a loving relationship with a holy God. Again, the writer of the Hebrews, he reflects on this and he writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Because we have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, we can approach the holy God of the universe with what? With confidence. Isn't that astounding? The God who is, is too pure to even look upon evil. He says, no, friends, come and approach me confidently. Come to me with your head held high. Do not come with fear and trembling. Do not come with caution. Come confidently, with full assurance. So can, I, can I try and paint this in practical terms for you? What does this mean for you, that you can come to God with confidence and with full assurance? It means, friends, that you can approach God today without any question of how God feels about you. You can know every moment of your life that the God of the universe looks at you with love with compassion, with tenderness, as he looks at his own son. Unconditional love, constant acceptance. That is what the God of the universe has for us now, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. Isn't this Easter news incredible, friends? And do you notice that the writer there, he says that that can be ours through faith. They're crucial words. We can have that access through faith. Faith, because faith, you see, is what links us to Jesus. Faith is, is what marries us to him and makes this possible. So let me finish this morning with an illustration. I want you to, to come with me on a journey this morning, and let's imagine that we are all somehow in London. We've taken a trip, we're standing there, and we've got the, the inclination uh, that we want to go and visit the Queen. And so we know where to go, Buckingham Palace. We have a stroll down uh, and find, of course, as you would when you come to Buckingham Palace, that the gates are locked. But that's not going to stop us, is it? So we yell, Queen, come on out. Come on. I want to meet you. 
We start shaking the gates a little bit. We even try climbing up those, those gates with the spikes on top. We don't get very far, though. A guard comes over to us. Can I help you, sir? Can I help you, madam? Yeah, I want to see the queen. Well, do you have an appointment? No, 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 no. But I, I want to see it. Tell her to come out. I'm ready. Come on. I want to meet her. I want to go in. What's going to happen? What's going to be the outcome of that interaction? We are going to leave in handcuffs, aren't we? That's probably what's going to happen. Do you know, friends, the same would have been true for Kate Middleton a few years ago. If she had wanted to see the Queen, rocked up to Buckingham Palace, shook the gates, come on out, Queen Liz, come on, I want to meet you. Uh, Ma'am, you need to go. Do you, are you supposed to be here? I'm Kate Middleton. I want to meet the Queen. Come on, tell her to come on out. What would have happened to her? One of those guys in that tall furry hat would have come over and put a beating on her. That's what would have happened. But now, when Kate Middleton arrives at Buckingham Palace, when she, when she walks up, well, she doesn't walk up anymore, does she? What happens? She is granted full and immediate access to everything. Why? Because she gets to approach the monarch and say, I'm with him, with William, married to him. I'm with him, so let me in. Because of her marriage to William, she is in. She has access, the access that family brings to you. She has access to everything. Friends, the tearing of the temple curtain is an invitation to us to marry ourselves to Jesus. To say, I'm with him. And to receive the full access that only the Son of God can grant you to the Father. Friends, the wall has fallen. Peace has come. Access has been granted. So will you say with the centurions at the cross this morning, surely this is the Son of God? Will you say to Jesus, I'm with you, Jesus. I'm coming with you. Give me access to the Father.